Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Genesis chapter 37. Today we're going to look at Joseph's faithful witness. Let me start with a question, kind of frame our thinking for today's message. What determines how you see the world? What determines how you see the world? Would you be surprised, hopefully not offended, but surprised if I told you that how you see everything is not determined so much by how it really is or an accurate picture of reality so much as by how you really are. The way you see the world is not determined so much by how it really is, but how you really are. I'm not saying that you determine reality, and if somebody does, you should run from them, not listen to anything else they say. I'm not saying you can't see reality. I'm just simply proposing that the way that you understand, the way that you interpret, and the way that you respond is not just determined by what is, but determined rather by the way you see it. You know, they call our age the age of information. When data is being produced at faster rates than you can keep up with. As a matter of fact, it's moved from just the age of information to the age of artificial information. Yea, even the age now of disinformation. When data is being doubled every 13 months... 120 years ago in 1900, data doubled every 100 years. By 1945, that had gone to like 25, 27 years. But in the last few years, and ultimately by the onslaught of the internet and all that it has provided, data is now doubling every 13 months. But listen, they are predicting in the next decade that that will move from 13 months to 12 hours. I mean, I'm already overwhelmed, are you not? And I'm pretty sure if we just step back for a moment, that's the point of what the evil one is wanting to get us to. I propose that this is the battleground of our age. When it's impossible to keep up, how do you form a perspective? How do you, perf- how do you form a worldview of all that is going on as a Christian to remain faithful? How do you do that? In addition to that, for those of you who are parents, how do you teach and train your children to do that? To be faithful not just next year, but 40 or 70 years from now when they're training their own children or grandchildren. Well, I'm going to dare to speak to that this morning. Before I get there, I want to give some perspective about where we are in our study of the book of Genesis. I started this study, it feels like a lifetime ago. I don't know for sure. I mean, like literally in in the fall of 2019 is when we first started studying Genesis. And we've pulled out of it several times just to do other things as uh, time necessitated. 
But in our first portion of the study of Genesis, part one, we surveyed the question of providence, the question of providence. We talked about origin and beginnings. And, and we, we asked the question, what is our beginning? What is our origin? The word Genesis itself literally means beginning. And we learned in the first 11 chapters of Genesis that life loses all lasting meaning and value when God is denied as the creator. But when we believe that God is creator, a divine purpose points us to a sovereign redeemer in all things. The second portion of our study, Genesis part 2, chapters 12 through 36, we surveyed the question of purpose. The question of purpose that we all ask of our life. Once we know from whence we've come, we, we have to ask, who am I and why am I here? Is there any meaning to my life? And, and we, we surveyed this question. Ultimately, we were introduced by the life of Abraham, but it was his grandson Jacob that we tracked predominantly in the pursuit of the things that lead us to ask these kinds of questions. And we learn this, that life only has true meaning and purpose when we are reconciled and aligned with our design and the intention of our creator by Jesus Christ. We come to know the one who has created us. Well, today we come to Genesis chapter 37. And we begin in chapters 37 all the way through chapter 50 to do or to study part three of Genesis and consider the question of perspective. How do I view the world to find meaning and understanding in everything that's going on? We know where we've come from, whose we are. We know who we are because of whom we've come from, and that brings meaning and purpose to our life. But now we're going to dare to look out into the circumstances and the situation, not only of our life, but of the whole world, and dare to propose that we can find meaning in it that matters, not just for me, but for everything that's going on. Here's what we'll learn. A God-centered worldview forms the Christian's perspective as we bear a faithful witness to God's work in us and his work through us. Here's the big idea from today's message I want you to walk away with. The Christian confession that Jesus is Lord shapes a God-centered worldview as we proclaim him in faithful witness. Jesus is Lord shapes a Christian's perspective and a God-centered worldview as we proclaim him in faithful witness. And so we begin today a journey towards a God-centered perspective. Chapter 37 begins the 11th Toledot, or literary division of the book of Genesis. If you go to verse 1, and if you remember from our beginning, we said that the book of Genesis as a literary work is divided in 11 literary divisions. And each of these divisions is identified by a generational beginning. It's called a Toledot. Or when you see it say, these are the generations of, you know that that division is taking place. And it usually identifies a character, like with Genesis 12, we identified Abraham as the head of that generation, but it was Jacob, his grandson, that we actually followed through for the majority of that period. Well, here we are at the generation of Jacob, but we will follow his son Joseph 
through the remainder of the book. So I want to give you some textual context about where we are in Genesis and how the remainder of our study will transpire. Let's go to Genesis 37. I want to read the first 11 verses for us and then we'll continue with the message. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Billah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. Joseph is the little brother of 10 older brothers and the big brother of one younger with one sister. He is a boy trying to survive among men. That's how we're introduced to him here in chapter 37. But though late in the line of siblings, he is the first son of Rachel. Remember who Rachel is? She's the one that Jacob loved. And he is the oldest of Rachel's two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. This likely explains why Jacob loved Joseph and why he favored him such. Probably explains why the others hated him as well, right? Though he was the youngest, he would not be outwitted. He does what most youngest siblings do. He ensures that dad doesn't miss anything, but is well informed of what the older ones are up to with a special peculiar interest in the things he knows dad will be most upset over, right? I mean, isn't that the way the baby of the family does it? That's the way I did it. When I needed to, I reminded him, I'm the baby. And that explains everything that needs to be explained. Jacob's favoritism towards Joseph was inescapable. Because he, he loved him so much, he, he made a special coat to adorn him. The coat of many colors, maybe you have heard. And this coat is one that Joseph wore. And just to see it on the horizon walking towards them, reminded of the deep loathsomeness that they felt towards their little brother. Right? The first paragraph introduces us to 
this sibling setting. And, and it sets the context by a, what I would call a relational thermometer that is set to high heat. That's what we need to understand here, that there's no love lost between the brothers and Joseph. They don't like him, and he's earned that designation. And so he has a dream, it tells us, too, actually, and he shares it with his brothers. He recounts with a naive lack of awareness of his brother's disdain for him. Either that, or some scholars actually say that he recounts it with an arrogant mocking towards them. Exactly which he's using, we're not sure, but we know this, that one or the other has to be true. And dream number one, he says, hey, listen, there are sheaves in the field and my sheaf stood up and all of your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down. It's about this time that the master plan of destruction of the younger sibling takes its full effect. This does not sit well with the brothers but they actually understood more than they knew that they understood. Because they asked him, are you to reign over us? Are you really going to rule over us? And had they got over their own anger and accepted that maybe that was at some time in the future going to happen, things could have gone differently. But nonetheless, they didn't. It says they hated him even more because of his dream. And so with one dream down... Joseph has a second dream. He saw the sun, the moon, and 11 stars. How convenient. There are 11 siblings and there are 11 stars. I wonder who this dream might apply to. And they all come and they bow down to him. By this time, the older brothers have had enough. They take him to his father. He recounts the dream to his father. And his father rebukes him and restates the obvious. Shall we bow down before you. And the second time the brothers have had all that they can stand, they are enraged more than they can comprehend. But it says something very interesting at the end of verse 11. The father, Jacob, kept these words in mind. Don't forget that. We're going to need that. He kept the saying in mind. You see, at face value, no one would disagree with the family's response. Far beyond what actually seemed highly improbable, yea, even impossible, this seemed more like a child's fanciful fairy tale imagination in overdrive in recounting the dreams. But there was one caveat, and I believe that Jacob sensed it. It was the prevailing remembrance of God's promise and God's work for his family and on his life. In which he lived. If you go back to verse 1. What does it tell us? But Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojourning. In the land of Canaan. The writer of Genesis is not simply giving us an accurate address. In case we want to mail something to Jacob. He's telling us something about Jacob's life. That Jacob now is living in the place that God. God promised and led through three generations from Abraham, from Isaac, and now Jacob into a land of the fulfillment of his promise. I believe Jacob sensed God was at work here. Now the remainder of the chapter goes on to tell us about the brother's response. 
The next time that Jacob sends Joseph out to go check on the brothers and to bring a report, he goes into the field, but he has to go further into the field because they've traveled all the way to Dothan by this point and they conspire to kill him. They said, you know what, we're so tired of him, we're going to kill him and be done with him. But Reuben, the oldest brother, intercedes and he says, you know what, let's, uh, let's do something different. Let's just throw him into one of the pits and, and from there we'll, uh, we'll figure out what to do next. And so that's what they did. They took his coat and they threw him into a pit. And it says while they were eating lunch, a, a band of traveling Ishmaelites passed by and they end up selling Joseph. And this way, Reuben knows, hey, we don't have his blood on our hands for murdering him but we're still rid of him and don't have to deal with him. And so that's what they do. They sell him off and he goes with the Ishmaelites. They take his coat and they tear it up and don't you know they enjoyed that and mocked him the whole time. They soaked it in animal's blood and they took it to their father and they told their father a very sad thing has evidently happened. He's dead. And it seemed like to them the end of that pesky little brother. But the last verse records the Ishmaelites doing something. If you look at the last verse, verse 36 of Genesis 37. Meanwhile, while the brothers are conspiring and lying to their father and convincing them of, his, of Joseph's death and washing themselves of his presence, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. That's the end of the chapter. But it reminds us there's more to take place. You see, that last verse records Joseph being sold to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, a place that we know God will use him powerfully. You see, friends, Jacob's mental note over Joseph's words, it is an echo for us. It is an echo that reminds us how Mary herself pondered the words of the shepherds when they told about how God told them of the baby who would be the Messiah and led them to him through the star. And it tells us that as the shepherds recorded the events of God's revelation to them, everyone was in awe, but Mary knew. And she treasured those words in her heart and she pondered the things of God for her baby. You see, friends, everything we see going on is not all that is going on. Therefore, we must never forget what it is that God's got going on and look to Him. What is God doing here? And what did what God was doing have to do with what Jacob was doing? You know, all we can really say about Joseph is that he was sharing his dream. It does not indicate that his dream was in some way divinely inspired. It, it didn't say that God spoke to Joseph and, and, and this big uh, uh, moment or anything of that nature. But we do know this, that God uses dreams. I'll tell you, Jacob knows God uses dreams because it had been his own dream that had defined his life. And while the dream was not divinely inspired to bring authority, it was insightful to give us a clue to where God was leading. And though it sounded absurd, Jacob kept the saying in his mind because of his own radical change that came from a dream. And so for this reason, what we can say about what's going on 
is that Joseph was simply bearing a faithful testimony to the dreams that he had had and to those who were affected by them. And though not in the manner we think, and maybe not even all with the right motivations, nonetheless, Joseph recounts what God said to him. Now, it's interesting in the way that he recounts it, and and what we might see as as naive, lack of awareness, or, or whatever the case may have been, Joseph did not demand that everyone understand exactly what he said, and nor do we see Joseph demanding that all accept exactly what he said. Here's what we do see of Joseph. He just simply shared what he knew. He shared what he knew, and that was his faithful testimony. Now, before you think I'm telling you to recount your dreams as a faithful testimony, I'm not telling you that. And if someone preaching does tell you that, get up and leave when they tell you that. The rest of it, you shouldn't even entertain. However, let me explain. I want to talk to you a little bit about redemptive history and how we know what we know about this passage in the scripture. In redemptive history, Joseph is a type that points us towards Jesus Christ. God sends Joseph to Egypt to to bless and to save his people in a time of severe famine, which we will get into in the following chapters. But this will not be an easy path for Joseph. His journey to Egypt, as we've already seen how it began, will occur under the cruelest of circumstances. Listen, he will be stripped, he will be abused by his own family, he will be unjustly enslaved, he will be wrongly accused, he will be forgotten in prison more than once, he will be abused again and sentenced in that place. But through it all, God is preparing him and positioning him to be raised up to the second most powerful position, not only in Egypt, But Egypt ruled the whole world. So you could say in the whole world he was being raised up at that time. You see, in Egypt, Joseph would become the agent through which God would save his people for their security, for their blessing, and ultimately for their increase. And the details may include pain. They surely include suffering and much injustice. But because we know the story's end, we can see God at work in Joseph's life now. This is the value of biblical theology or redemptive history for us as Christians. For the gospel tells us that God sent his only begotten son, Jesus, who was born of a virgin, who lived a perfect life with no sin, who came unto his own, but his own did not receive him, the scriptures say. He was rejected by his own. He was stripped of his clothes, mocked and beaten. He died a cruel, unjust crucifixion. He was buried, and on the third day, he was raised. And what no one imagined, Jesus and Luke chapter 24 along the road to Emmaus opened the eyes of his disciples to see and know God's work through him as the one who had come God's Messiah and now all who call on his name in faith are saved because as Acts 4 12 reminds us there are no other names given among men whereby we must be saved Jesus is God's eternal plan to reconcile all things to himself. And so Joseph is a type that prefigures Jesus. But also Joseph is a model for us. 
to see the value and the potency of a faithful witness and faithful testimony for our lives. You see, Joseph had absolutely no idea he would be sold into slavery. He did not know he would be subject to false accusation. He didn't know he would be thrown into jail. And he didn't know he would ever have to interpret someone else's dreams. He just knew he was talking about his own. He didn't know he would have to learn how to manage food storage in seven years of abundance so he could feed the whole world in seven years of famine. Joseph had no idea he would be confronted with the decision of whether or not he would forgive and reconcile or seek vengeance with his brothers. He didn't know all of this, but Joseph did know this. He had a dream and he couldn't get over it. And because he couldn't get over it, it wouldn't let him go. You see, friends, Joseph was faithful to what he knew. And he trusted the Lord that what he knew was enough. It was enough. We know how Joseph's crisis will turn out, right? And, and our knowledge of knowing the end from the beginning... It, it helps us to, to study more confidently of what God is going, what God's doing in the life of what Joseph is doing. But Joseph's crisis is not for us to be comforted in knowing the end of his story from the beginning. Rather, this is what I want you to understand, that our comfort in knowing the end of Joseph's story should bring courage to our hearts to trust God for the direction and the outcome of our own. Do you see that that God who is working in Joseph's life is the same yesterday when Joseph lived, today when you and I live, and forevermore? His faithfulness then is the same faithfulness today. We do not know all that God is or all that God will do in us nor through us, but we do know that he is working and we know that he has commanded and commissioned us to be his witnesses. And friends, I, pro, uh, um, I propose to you today that we need to know no more. That is enough. That is enough for us to obey. We need not fear all that we do not know, but typically when we expose our fears and our anxieties about what's transpiring in the world, what's in the center of it? Everything that we don't know, everything we can't control. Am I right? You don't have to say amen. We're all in that same boat together. How often what we don't know consumes us. We're called, rather, to trust and obey the Lord with what we do know of him. And that that will be enough. And what do we know? We know the truth of the gospel. And it is the gospel of Jesus Christ that forms and fuels the Christian's perspective of the whole world. The Christian worldview is shaped by the Christian's faithful witness that Jesus is Lord. In the remainder of our time, I want to share three factors that form a Christian's faithful witness in order to shape a distinctively God-centered world view. Three factors that form our witness that shape our world view. Factor number one is what I call the source of truth, the revelation of the living God. The source of truth, 
which is the revelation of the living God. Joseph had a dream that held him. This is the revelation of his testimony. The Christian's faithful witness begins with this. God is the creator of all that is. That's where we began this whole study in Genesis. And there's a reason that God began with that. It's the foundation upon we live, upon which we live our lives and upon which we understand everything that is. God created man in his image and his likeness. He made them male and female. He created us for himself. Sin enters in in Genesis chapter 3 and separates people from God by death who then came and cursed sin in Jesus or in his appearance to Adam and Eve and the serpent and he cursed sin specifically in a way for Adam and specifically in a way for Eve and then he cursed sin over the serpent whom he declared you will strike his heel he will crush your head and he tells us of the victory that will come God establishes a covenant through which he promises his salvation and that covenant salvation comes to us through Jesus Christ who is the Christ of God the fulfillment of all of God's promises of Messiah he is the Lord of all creation and he died by laying his own life down to become the savior for all who believe in him you see Jesus is the revelation of the living God he is the center of all that is he is the source of all truth and listen to me friends the further Jesus is from the center of your life the less anything will make sense the less anything will matter ultimately and the less anything will have meaning because without him you remain dead in your sin separated from the living God and still searching for the center that makes sense of everything you have to ask yourself do things completely not make sense at all? Or can I find meaning in the things of the world? The more Jesus is the center of your life, the more God's word defines your perspective of all things. The second factor in order to form a faithful witness and a faithful worldview is a historic. Joseph lived in covenant. The covenant that God made with his father. Joseph was living in a story, friends. Do you hear that? He was not his own story. He was in a story. I love stories because stories have a way of bringing understanding and comprehension and meaning for us. And often we don't even realize it until we get to the end. And we go, oh, okay. That's what we see here. God's faithfulness had defined everything about Joseph's life. That's what we're seeing. And God's saying to us, duh, not really. But he's wanting us to see that it is true for our life right now. That we know the end of our life from the very beginning. Therefore, we can have confidence in the one who is working and courage in our heart. Joseph's life would not be without problems, but it would only hold meaning because of God's redeeming work that was taking place within him. And it was the meaning and the purpose that he had found in God that held him in the midst of every wrongdoing that threatened and came against his own life. You see, for the Christian, the gospel defines our life. 
through Jesus Christ, God rescues us from the kingdom of darkness and transfers us to the kingdom of light. Colossians 1, 13 and 14 tells us. He rescues us from sin and death by ransoming us in payment with his own blood, Revelation 5, 9. And he gives us a new identity that brings meaning and purpose to our life here and now. And in Jesus Christ, God takes our life in the here and the now and places us into the eternal context of his redemptive plan. That's what God is doing in Jesus Christ. God is taking your life in history and he is bringing it into his story. Is that how you see everything that's transpiring in your life? How you understand what took place this last week that felt like it took your feet out from under you. Everything that took place that felt like it established your feet under you. Was it because of Jesus or something else? You see, friends, when we live established in our new identity in Jesus, we are set free to see the world as God sees it and to serve with our whole life for his Glory. Life in this world only makes sense to the extent that we believe fully and live fully for God's glory. The more Jesus is the center of your life and you are hidden with God in Christ, the more you will hold an eternal perspective of and a redemptive purpose for the whole world that brings meaning to everything. The third factor is what I call a call to action for personal participation. How then, pastor, do we live because of what we know, because of who we know? You see, Jacob's dream established his life in a story that, that others would come and bow down to him. Like that, that's where he was going to be used. And while it was not gladly received by others, it did provide for Joseph a call to action of personal participation. That there was something that was going to transpire when his life was going to be used in a way that would bring greater honor and glory, not just to himself, not actually for himself, but for others. And Joseph told about his dream because there was more overflow in him about that dream than there was the fear or the threat that was gonna come against him because of that dream. You hear what I'm saying to you? I'm talking about our relationship with Jesus Christ. And, and Joseph, in relation to his dream, viewed everything around him because of it. If Joseph had not held a God-centered perspective, the trauma of his life, the abuse of his life, the mistreatment and the injustice to which he was subjected would have disillusioned him with God, would have led him to become distraught, depressed, and destroyed by his circumstances, would have embittered him by the broken relationships all around him and his family, and would have left him burning with anger at the whole world. I tell you, we have a world that is increasingly described by those very adjectives. But even after all of that, Joseph wasn't any of it. Let me tell you why. Why the Ishmaelites sold Joseph in Egypt. This is my hunch, but I think it's accurate. By the time they got to Egypt, they were so fed up 
with him talking about his dreams that they couldn't listen to it anymore. They had been rotating uh, uh, security guards on Joseph Keep and going, I can't take it anymore, man. It's your turn. I, I, I can't do it. He will not shut up about the dream. And then we got to get rid of this guy. He might work well for us, but we got to sell him off and let somebody else deal with him. When he got sold into slavery, he got put in prison. Do you know how the other prisoners knew he might be able to interpret Pharaoh's dream? He hadn't been doing anything but talking about dreams since he got into prison. Would somebody shut Joseph up? No, no one would. Joseph would not be shut up about what God was doing in his life because it was his faithful testimony that positioned him to be used by God even through the abuse, through the injustices, through the, uh, everything that he went through, he was positioned to be used by God and because of it, it produced in him a God perspective view on everything. You see that? Man, if this doesn't change the way you understand what's going on in your life because of Jesus, nothing can and nothing will. There isn't anything that's going on in you right now or around you right now that is outside the redeeming power of Jesus Christ. And until you see everything in that way, you're still gonna be a victim to all of your circumstances every time they occur. But by God's grace, you can become an overcomer because of the one who has overcome. Christians have this same call to action on our life. Job didn't let his situation of losing everything and living in abject misery to overwhelming. And even the bad counsel of his friends didn't cause him to lose faith in God, nor to disown his friends. That's a lot of grace that we need today, is it not? Abraham didn't let 90 years of waiting cause him to weary with God and walk away. Man, I, I can be out in 90 seconds sometimes. That's, you know, I mean, it can happen quickly. Moses didn't let the griping and the complaining of millions of people cause him to lose faith in God. He had to deal with the Israelites on a daily basis and there were millions of them griping and complaining and wondering why he couldn't do better and how he couldn't do this and how he would dare to do that. But he didn't let it distract him. Paul didn't let the threat of the crowds who wanted to kill him stop him from going to those same mobs to preach Jesus to him. How many do we need to hear of before we hear God's call to action for our own personal participation these men and these people of Scripture are not the reason things worked out. God is the reason things worked out for their life. God is the one that made things work out for their life. It is God's glory that he was seeking. It is God's people's good that he was making no matter how their situation turned out. Amen? You know what amen means, right? I believe, yes. Make sure. Make sure you're believing. Jesus commands and commissions every Christian as his faithful witness to the whole world to declare the excellencies of his praise with our whole life. And friends, listen to me. That is enough for us to obey. That is enough. The more Jesus is the center of your life, the more his word commands your life to participate in his redemptive mission in the whole world. 
The confession Jesus is Lord shapes a God-centered worldview as we proclaim Him in faithful witness. Now, a few final comments before we conclude. What fills you will overflow from you. What fills you will determine how you view all that is around you. What fills you will determine how you see your place in everything that is going on. And it is the love of Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 teaches us, that controls us as Christians. Because we believe that one died for all, and therefore all have died. And those who live, no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them. Therefore, Paul says. You hear that? Therefore, we live differently and distinctively because what we know about Jesus. He's given to us a message and a ministry to give to the whole world. Christians live for God's glory to show and to share Jesus with all in order to view the world in the way God sees it. And so I close with one final question for your personal application. And I implore you to invite the Spirit of God to help you with this. What are you telling yourself about your life? What are you telling yourself about your situation and your circumstances? What are you telling yourself about your hurts, about your loneliness, about your darkness, about your depression? What are you telling yourself about your bitterness, about your frustration, your disappointments, your wounds? What are you telling yourself about your joys? Is Jesus the center of your all? Is Jesus the center of your all? Let's pray.